if you so responsibly came in this morning or earlier this week, read the lectionary text for today, I apologize because I've changed it. Actually, the text I'm reading comes from the Gospel according to Mark, and Matthew had Mark's text before him when Matthew wrote his, so it should not sound unfamiliar. This text from Mark comes to us in the third chapter, verses 19 through 35. May God open up to us an understanding of this word. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Baalzebul, and the ruler of the demons he casts out. And by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. So Jesus called them to him and spoke to them in parables and said, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man, then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother, my brother, or my sister. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so I wrote this sermon title with some fear and trepidation. Two cheers for Mother's Day, knowing as you do that I don't have a great track record when it comes to preaching Mother's Day sermons. I love mothers, and I especially love my mother and miss her desperately. It's just that sometimes, I think, Mother's Day in the church tends to get overblown. And besides that, not for everybody is it a joyful occasion. For many, it's a very painful time. When the Goyers' daughters lost their mom in 2001, Soon thereafter, one of them was in a play at school, and well-intentioned, the director of the play got a vase full of red roses and brought it up when the play was over and then invited all of the kids in the play to invite their mothers forward so that they could give them a rose. 
my daughter, as well as one other young lady there who had recently lost her mother, looked completely lost. And luckily, the fathers had enough sense to stand up, now that we were the surrogate mothers, and walk over and take the rose uh, from our daughters. I am not alone in having a painful experience with Mother's Day. Many of you are in the same place. There are many women here who are not mothers for some reason, although wish that they had been. There are many men and women here who are estranged for their, from their mothers for who knows why. Mother's Day is a wonderful beautiful time of celebration and also a painful time for many. And besides, mothers are unbelievable and it's a shame to set one day aside as Mother's Day when really all 365 should be days of gratitude and thanksgiving to our mothers. I was thinking about all of this and what I should preach for Mother's Day when I decided to be safe and turn to what Jesus did with his mother in the Bible. I've already gotten in trouble once, and I don't want to go there again. Anita asked me recently, what are you preaching for Mother's Day? Well, she said, you know, sequels are never as good as the first one, and your first one wasn't good to begin with. I actually thought it was, it was just bad timing. So I turned to the Bible and Jesus and began to see what Jesus was doing with his mom. And, and what I discovered at first glance, at least, was that the Bible depicts Jesus' relationship with his mother in not such good light. In fact, it, it seems to me that it might have been easier to be the mother of Sigmund Freud than it was to be the mother of Jesus. Mary, or Theotokos, or Mary the mother of God, or Saint Mary, Mary's mother of Jesus, whatever word you use, Jesus was born in circumstances that were quite mysterious and I suspect created some scandal. Besides that, Jesus decides to get born when she's away from home, in Bethlehem, at the seat of Herod, King Herod, where it had been announced to him that a ruler, a king, had been born, putting all children at risk, sending Mary and Joseph and Jesus on the lamb to Egypt for three years. Luke says that at 12, Jesus literally just skips out on his family goes into the sanctuary of the temple and sits down with the priest to talk theology, leaving his mother having no idea where he was. They were halfway home before they discovered he wasn't with them. They had to double back. Almost every interaction in the Bible from then on as an adult with Jesus and his mom comes across as being almost rude. At Cana, when Jesus shows up with 12 wedding crashers besides himself, his mother comes to him and says, Look, y'all consumed all the wine. We're running out. And Jesus says to her, What does that have to do with me? 
Later in Matthew, Jesus comes across as rude again in this sort of apocalyptic spell-binding sermon he's preaching. He says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword to set son against father and sister against mother and brother against brother. And then in Luke's gospel, in this, I hope, hyperbolic language, Jesus says, I say unto you, if you do not hate your mother and your father and your sister and your brother, and yes, even life itself, you cannot be my disciple in the kingdom of heaven. What must Mary have thought when he was saying those things? I've read several stories that say that Jesus had a Freudian issue with his mom, or that his mom was just a stereotypical Jewish mother, guilt-laden, heavy-handed, yada, yada, yada. But I gotta tell you, I think psychoanalyzing Jesus and Mary is a little bit like thinking you understand the Bible by reading the illustrations in the Good News version. Jesus loved his mother. Being Jesus, he loved his mother deeply. He repeated the commandment over four times, as I counted, honor thy father and thy mother. While in great torment and pain upon the cross, he looked down at his mother standing there, not his father. His father seldom shows up after his birth. His mother is the one. She's standing there, and Jesus says to her, this is now my friend, my friend, this is now my mother. Mother, let him now care for you. It was an act of complete love and devotion to his mother in the midst of great pain. He loved his mother. So maybe, you know, when we hear these things that Jesus said, it's important for us to understand the context because, again, all text needs to be seen in context. What's going on? So that's why I thought, let's look at Mark's passage for that. Mark begins it by saying, he went home. This Jesus, who had grown up a child, just like every other child, the son of a carpenter, had learned the trade of a carpenter, had gone to school just like every other child. This Jesus went home where he found his family and his friends. Now, everybody wanted a piece of him. Jesus is back, they said. Remember when he left home and went out into the wilderness and got baptized by John the Baptist? And remember how he went into the wilderness and was tempted by, by the devil for 40 days? And remember how he began to stir the pot as a prophet, preaching all these wild and crazy things? Jesus is back, they said. Remember how he went out and healed people that the priest in the temple wouldn't come close to with a ten-foot pole? Jesus is back, they said. Let's go, everybody. Jesus is at church. And so they all went down there, and Jesus held forth and began to preach to them. And he preached things like, the, fat, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And he preached things like, God forgives all of us. Even that guy who used to be governor in South Carolina who now just got elected legislator. He's 
saved and, and forgiven just like Bill Clinton is forgiven. All of us, Jesus is preaching. And word got out. He's out of his mind. They're talking about him. He's out of his mind. Listen to that stuff he's saying. The scribes heard about it from Jerusalem. So they come all the way up from Jerusalem and sit down and start listening to him. And finally they say, you're the devil. Nobody can be saying this unless they're the devil. All that did was energize Jesus all the more. And from that point on, Jesus began to say to them that great line that Abraham Lincoln used, a house divided cannot stand. Why would I be undermining the power of the demons if I'm one of them? And then Jesus lifts up that quote that I, ages and ages have not clearly understood. A sin against the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin. But Mark helps us with it. Because then he adds, because they had said Jesus had an unclean spirit. That must be it. Claiming that Jesus is the devil. Now, word gets out to Jesus' family that Jesus has lost his mind. And so, being his family, his mom and brothers and sisters, hightail it down to church to try to get a moment with him to pull him out of the predicament that he's obviously working himself into. It's so crowded, they can't get in. It's too crowded for them to even eat lunch. Finally, they wiggle their way in far enough to get someone to send word to Jesus that they would like a word or a moment with him. And Jesus, hearing that, stops in mid-sentence and says, Who is my mother, my brothers, and my sisters? Here is my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Anyone willing to do the will of God is my brothers and my sisters. Apparently, Jesus' deep love for his mother was second only to his deep love for God. In every single case, whenever Jesus experienced his mother or brothers or sisters trying to prevent him from being the one he was called to be, he would get it back up. Because his primary devotion was to God, always, and to do the will of God. I have a friend who went to uh, Duke undergraduate and then North Carolina Law School in Atlanta, who then got a job at Austin and Bird, a right, a right prestigious law firm in Atlanta, and it was doing pretty well. His parents had spent a gazillion dollars on his education, and he was probably making half a gazillion dollars a year in litigation. Until his life began to fall apart, his wife asked him for a divorce. His children said they had never seen him around for weeks and weeks. And he began to do some soul searching. Out of that, he decided that, you know what? He wanted to go to seminary. He was an Episcopalian. But he knew that he would have to face his mother with that news. His mother, who had 
nurtured him and cared for him and tutored him and taught him and been, been the real strength behind his academic uh, success. And he knew that his mother would probably not be happy. So he went home and he sat down with her and he told her the news that he felt like he was called to seminary. And she was speechless. Finally, when she spoke, she said, but what about your family? What about your practice that you've worked 15 years to build? How are you going to support yourself and all of them? She was just being a mother, trying to protect him all along and his family. I think maybe in the same way that Mary was being with Jesus when word got out that Jesus had lost his mind. Mary went to see him to protect him from himself. In the end, of course, my friend's mother came around and she's as proud of him now as she is of anyone, of course, because she loved him. But sometimes that's not always true. Families are broken and brought into great dysfunction because children refuse to do what fathers or mothers want or expect. The job of a family is to bring up and protect their children. That's what fathers and mothers do. Sometimes they don't. You would not believe the percentage of abuse that goes on in our families that goes unreported. When a family's job is to protect the children and that happens, it's beyond tragic. Sometimes it even goes on the other side, that families knowing all of that out there begin to overprotect their children and they set up step by step everything the child is supposed to do. They hover around their children in the helicopter parent uh, stereotype. Either way, it's hard. What do we do today as parents in our world where we are invaded with technology in ways that we cannot keep out, with great anxious fear that seems always at the door knocking? What do we do to live in a life and a world where we are responsible to God first and to our children and our parents second? Will Willimon, the chaplain at Duke, or was the chaplain at Duke, he's now the bishop in northern Alabama, says that 20 years ago, Christmas cards were printed with the Joseph and Mary in adoration of the Christ child at the manger. Now all Christmas cards seem to be printed with pictures of our children or our families on ski slopes or on cruises. His point is that our family has become the center of our adulation, not the Christ child. That our family has become the most important gathering of humans, not the gathering of faithful people. And the fact is, he says, that the family with all of its virtues and all of its blessings cannot support cannot live up under the weight that is expected of it in this world is just way too small. 
If you think about the way our family units work, we move away from our parents, and so the nuclear family becomes smaller and smaller, and we insulate ourselves away from the world because we're afraid of it, and we just close our doors and protect ourselves, we become smaller and smaller still, versus the way Jesus held up the family as an ever-expanding movement out to the Jews, to the Gentiles, even out to the lepers. An inclusion more and more, a widening, a bigger girth of family. You know, um, Jesus said, here are my brothers and my sisters and my mother, pointing to all of those gathered around, holding up for them and us what it means to be the church. When we baptize kids, I ask what is the Christian name of this child? Sally McGillicuddy. And I say, Sally, you came in Sally McGillicuddy, but you are now Sally, child of God. Your name is no longer McGillicuddy, but child of God. And what that says is that you are now part of this greater body called the church. And all these people who are standing up for you, Miss Sally, are called to be your mothers. Their job is to mother you into faith. And I use that word intentionally because for most of us, I would suspect our faith was grounded at our mother's or our grandmother's knee. Maybe some fathers, but mostly our mothers. And this church stands up and we say, welcome, Sally, into our family of faith. It's what we do at baptism. And what we are given in that baptism is the assurance that water is thicker than blood. In a world of grandparents without children close by, single parent families, marriages under stress, technology invading our homes, we need a much bigger family than the one we are born into and much uh, greater mothering than the mother of the one we are born into can give us. And it's called the church. So, all of that is why I titled the sermon Two Cheers for Mother's Day. Three cheers for mothers. Two cheers for Mother's Day. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.